Welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students. I'm your host, Ariel Frame, here with my co-host, Yemin Chen. Hey, Ariel, how's it doing? And our pr- producer, Sabrina Hope. Yeah, she's, she says hi. <laughs> Who's quietly helping out over here. Uh, and our host, Asad Lone. Hey, how Guest. are you? Guest. <laughs> I meant guest. Okay, <laughs> no, forgive me for that. Okay, well, uh, we'll ignore that I said that, and we'll just jump right in. Um, Assad is actually uh, in the same lab with me. I'm excited to have him here. I've been um, bugging him to come on the show for a while, and uh, really excited to talk about his work. So, uh, Assad, why don't you give us a little overview of your work and uh, what you do? All right. So, um, as you said, I'm in Ariel's lab. Our supervisor is Dr. Robert Cumming. And um, we work on neurodegenerative disorders, and specifically we work on Alzheimer's disease. And uh, currently I'm doing my PhD in the lab. And so what usually when you look, think about Alzheimer's disease, you think about um, memory deficits and dementia and how it's the leading disease that's, that uh, encompasses dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, but we kind of take a different approach to Alzheimer's disease in our lab. Usually, when you talk, when you think about Alzheimer's disease, you want to you think about amyloid beta, which is the main protein that accumul- which accumulates in the brain and um, progressively causes a lot of death in your brain cells. Um, but we don't really meddle around with that amyloid beta, that protein so much. We focus on brain metabolism, and we are trying to manipulate the metabolism of your brain and using that as a therapy to cure Alzheimer's, cure or manage Alzheimer's disease. Wow, okay. So, jump right in there. Um, <laughs> so, I, I was wondering if you could maybe step back for a second, and for the benefit of those of us, uh, me, basically, who, who don't know that much about Alzheimer's, other than the fact that it is some sort of brain disease, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, it has something to do with dementia, it has something right. to do with memory loss, with loss of function, cognition, mm-hmm. just, could you just really quickly, you know, in, in a, explain like in five, say, for example, right. what what is Alzheimer's disease? Absolutely. So, um, Alzheimer's disease is actually named after the physician, the German physician who okay. uh, discovered it. His name was Alloy Alzheimer. Mm-hmm. And um, he discovered this disease in one of his patients who was to, who was not as old as his regular patients would have been. Mm-hmm. And he, so when she passed away, he opened up her brain uh, and he found these specific, these deposits in the brain of his patient. And um, these deposits were of two different kinds of proteins. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the proteins is called amyloid beta, okay. and another protein is called tau. Right. Um, and these two proteins have now been discovered to be two of the ma- root causes of Alzheimer's disease. So let's say if an individual does um, uh, get Alzheimer's disease, and if after they pass, if you open up their brain, and you, you would definitely find these two proteins in larger quantities compared to people who don't have Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So do, do in, I guess, in, in normal people who don't have Alzheimer's disease, do we have these proteins anyway? Is it, is it normal to have these at all? Absolutely. So, um, so we'll, let's talk about amyloid beta, because okay. that's mostly the, that I work on, right. and that's mostly what I know about too. So I don't want to give people like, sure, the wrong yeah. information. Um, but amyloid, yes, the, the protein is actually present in all cells of your body. Okay. Um, the difference is that 
there is an unusual amount of accumulation of this protein in your brain, specifically in people who are who who uh, tend to get Alzheimer's disease with their age. Now, I don't want to say that people who don't get Alzheimer's disease don't have accumulation mm -hmm. of this specific protein within their brains. So, Yemen. Let's say that we both grow old together, right? But only oh, one of beautiful. us. I know, right? That's so cute. <laughs> On Gradcast, <laughs> and only one of us gets Alzheimer's disease. Okay. okay? Um, let's say only I get Alzheimer's disease, but say you not don't. It. Yeah, most you know, most likely I might, but <laughs> um, but so after we die, right. if you opened up our brains, charming. Uh, we would both have significant quantities of this protein deposited within our brain. Okay. But only one of us, me, got Alzheimer's disease. So um, why does that happen? Why does that occur? Um, a lot of research has shown that people can have a, a lot of uh, accumulation of this protein within their brains, but not everyone gets the disease. And so taking our example, mm -hmm. your brain cells might have been resistant to the toxic effects of amyloid beta. Oh, cool. And what we have found is that your brain cells will show a different metabolism than mine, which is one of the reasons why we study metabolism in brain metabolism in our lab, because we know that cells that have their metabolism switched can be more resistant to this protein that causes Alzheimer's disease. So we want to use, use this fact and try and maybe work it and use it in our favor and maybe find a cure down the line for Alzheimer's disease. Wow, that's really cool. So um, the amyloid, amyloid beta protein, um, what is it about it that might cause damage? Uh, so now we know that some people, you know, don't necessarily have damage in the brain it, just because they have deposits. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's uh, some of the reason that we are looking at brain metabolism. But if we were to look at amyloid beta, what reasons do we have to believe that it's causing damage directly? What 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 might it actually be doing? So um, there, there, there's quite a few things that this protein specifically does. But um, in, in short, what this protein does is it, it, it accumulates in deposits within our brain. And these deposits are called plaques. So they're called amyloid beta plaques. And with time, these plaques, they produce a lot of... Um, these damaging molecules called reactive oxygen species, or ROS for short. And what these damaging molecules do, these ROS molecules, they can um, damage your DNA, they can damage a lot of uh, structures and machinery within your cell, they can also damage uh, very important structures such as the mitochondria, which are um, the, the powerhouse of the cell. We were just discussing that oh, earlier. Course, yeah. <laughs> um, so. And, and so when you're getting damaged DNA, you, you tend to have a lot of cell death. When you, um, when you are affecting the p mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, you, you tend to lower the amount of energy produced by the cell. And then um, the cell might uh, lead to cell death. Um, and that is important because uh, our brains are about 2% of our body weight but they, are, they use about 20% of all the energy that's produced by our body. So the brain is a very energy, uh, it, it, it requires a lot of energy to you know, function properly. And when you have these energy deficits within these cells, when, when amyloid beta can affect the mitochondria, you, you tend to have a lot of 
um, aberrant function within the cells, which can lead to a lot of cell death. So these amyloid beta proteins collectively, they can lead to a lot of cell death. Um, they can lead to a lot of uh, synapse dysfunction. Um, and that is usually how they ca cause a lot of memory deficits within, with time. Okay, so like the buildup of, of this protein, these plaques, they interfere with how your brain cells function and, you know, in, in, a, in a bigger sense, how your brain functions. Absolutely. How, not only how these cells function, but how these cells communicate with each other too. Okay. That, and, it's, and it's also important to note that this amyloid beta protein that uh, uh, progressively deposits within the brain, this usually starts around 30 years of age. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Right, and um, it, it starts at 30, mm -hmm. but the deposits keep occurring with time. And usually when, you, when someone gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, it's usually 70 to 80 plus years of age. Right. And so by that time, the damage that's been done by these plaques has, it has been so significant that by then, you get to see all these memory deficits, all these problems, personality disorders as mm -hmm. well. And by that time, it's way too late to do anything. By that time, you're basically managing uh, and trying to improve the quality of life. But there's no way that you will be able to cure a person by that time. Right. Because the deposits have been starting to accumulate since, uh, let's say, about 40 years b prior to what, yeah. when the symptoms arise. Okay, so so what you're work, working on now are ways to try to prevent that, to sort of catch it earlier or to look at how that might um, be possible? So technically, I would say that we're trying to promote resistance from okay. the toxic effects of this harmful protein. So we can't prevent the accumulation of it. Okay. It's, it's, it's starting at such an early age that if you want to, if you want to cure and, right. and I'll say that it would, uh, you know, quotation marks, cure Alzheimer's disease, yeah. then w when do you start? When do you start giving the treatment? At 30 years? At mm -hmm. 20 years of age? Mm -hmm. How early do you go to prevent that accumulation? Um, so with, uh, with when, when, what we're trying to do with manipulating the metabolism is we're trying to um, hopefully make those brain cells more resistant as you age to the toxic effects of amyloid beta. Okay, so you're, so if we're going back to your example with with you and me, right. so you're, you're saying trying to make our brains more like my brain uh, and, and being resistant to the toxic effects so that I, I, I don't get Alzheimer's Absolutely. as I get older. Absolutely. Okay. And so you've been talking about um, metabolism. Mm -hmm. that That's the area of your research, right? right? Um, so would it be possible for you to just quickly explain what is metabolism? I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of us have heard, have heard about it in terms of diets and stuff, mm -hmm. right? It's yeah. something about burning energy, Absolutely. about food intake and so on. It's, but it's really in these days. Yeah, right? right? Yeah. So other than trying to lose weight, what is metabolism, you know, in the, in the context of your research here? Okay. So biologically speaking, metabolism is the burning, is the processing of glucose to produce okay. energy. And energy, by energy I mean a molecule called ATP. And so what happens in our cells is that we have this, um, this uh, structure, the mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell. Right. And what it does is it takes, well, the cell takes in glucose and it can, via a series of chemical reactions, we produce ATP, which is the uh, currency of energy 
for sales. Right, adenosine triphosphate, if I remember right. Exactly, yeah, okay. right, yeah. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so our, and our, within our cells, we have two different kinds of metabolism. We have one that is dependent on oxygen, Okay. which is what the mitochondria uses, and that is called oxidative phosphorylation, or OxFos for short. Okay. And then there's another kind of metabolism that doesn't require oxygen, and that happens in the cytoplasm. So that's the, uh, the fluid that the cell is made up of mostly. And um, the mitochondria, the oxygen-dependent metabolism, is much more efficient. You get a lot more, significantly more energy, more ATP molecules mm -hmm. than... Um, the the metabolism that doesn't require oxygen, and that's called glycolysis. So an easy way to understand this is that if you're on the treadmill, and you're running really fast, yep. at one at they they will come a point when you are really uh, uh, trying to get as much air a, in as you can, and so your cells have a. Uh, are in an environment that is lacking a lot of oxygen. Okay. And what our cells do is that they switch their metabolism towards the metabolism that doesn't require oxygen, glycolysis. Even though it does not produce a lot, uh, enough, as much energy as the mitochondria, right. there's still some being produced. Okay. And so it's kind of like a backup metabolism in, in, in times when oxygen is not available. But so basically speaking, these are the two kinds of metabolisms within our cells, bodies that are present. All right. And so how does that relate to your work with brain cells? I'm glad that you asked. So this, oh, is, a, uh, <laughs> this is work that actually Ariel is working on too. So um, yeah. remember the, uh, the, the metabolism that I talked about that doesn't require oxygen, yeah, glycolysis, right? right? Um, one of the end products of glycolysis is lactic acid or lactate. So you probably would have heard that when you're on the treadmill, you work out really hard, yep. your muscles get sore, they're like, oh, there's a lot of lactic acid buildup. It's because your cells are using more glycolysis, more metabolism that doesn't ha use oxygen. And then you have this end product lactic acid buildup, okay? Um, research from another PhD student from our lab has actually shown that this uh, acid, this lactic acid, is actually beneficial for memory. Oh, cool! So um, we show that in mice that are that with time, lactic acid is uh, correlates correlates. I'm not saying that it's involved. It correlates with better memory. Okay, All so right. that that kind of um, fits into our story because remember when I talked about some cells being resistant to amyloid beta yeah. and how their metabolism gets switched? Well, their metabolism gets switched to glycolysis, this metabolism that doesn't use a lot of oxygen. All right. Whereas most of the brain cells will use metabolism that requires oxygen. And so by switching metabolism to glycolysis, not only are we resistant to amyloid beta, but these uh, uh, our brain cells are better at uh, storing memory. Um, yeah, a brain is better at storing memory. Wow. Yeah. So, like lactic acid uh, is is what causes our muscles fe to feel sore as right. well, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I guess are you are you saying that having like a sore brain <laughs> might be correlated with better memory sort of processing. Um, you know, like, I don't want people to think that after a hangover, like, they, they, <laughs> they might be able to remember better, but like, right. but this is what our research is showing okay. that um, having higher levels of lactate within the brain is actually correlating 
with better memory. Now, we don't know the mechanism yet. Right. We don't know why it's occurring or how, but we know that these two go hand in hand right now. The higher levels of lactic acid or lactate and better memory go hand in hand, but we don't know why. And I, I believe that is one of the pro that the project Ariel is working on right now is tr to find out the mechanism behind this phenomenon. Yeah, so I guess uh, we could touch a little bit on my work, but I'm not going to dwell on it. But the basic idea is, uh, so we mit we did these measures and, uh, you know, there are some other papers that have shown similar uh, with lactate and its involvement in memory, um, but uh, it's still sort of controversial as to who's, what cell type in the brain is using it. So is it, um, is it actually neurons uh, that are shifting their metabolism or is it other cell types that are providing the lactate to the neurons to then actually use, use up? and break down instead of produce themselves. So are they using the lactate or are they producing the lactate? And that's not not really mm. not really worked out yet. Um, so that's sort of what I'm what I'm working on. <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe we'll talk about that more so in another episode when I'm the guest. But yeah. and I can be the host then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll switch it up. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess we've gone quite in depth into mm -hmm. a lot of the details of uh, Alzheimer's and uh, sort of what interests you in Alzheimer's. Um, before you came to this lab, w did you have any interest in Alzheimer's disease uh, d or did it, did, it, did it come as a, a package deal when you, when you joined the coming lab? So um, before, this, before joining the coming lab, um, I had no background in neuro anything. I had never taken a course in undergrad on any kind of like basic neurobiology, study of the brain anatomy, nothing at all. My background was metabolism and aging. And okay. uh, I did my undergrad at McMaster University, um, but then my grandfather developed Alzheimer's disease. And so I kind of thought that uh, why not use my background and you know, the fact that I'm, I, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I care about my grandfather and trying to use that for a greater good towards some kind of greater good. Mm -hmm. And when I was looking for labs that interested me, I came across my PI's work and um, I was interested in it because it, 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 it kind of used two very diverse, very different um, topics and merged them together. Um, in the past, metabolism and neurodegenerative disorders, they don't usually go hand in hand. No one's really looked at them, but slowly it's actually becoming a very hot topic. Um, we're actually going to a conference, uh, Ariel and I, at the end of May in Montreal, where they've actually sectioned off part of it specifically for metabolism in neurodegenerative disorders. So th the tide is slowly picking up. But w this is one of the reasons why I um, joined the lab is because it was it was it was tackling two topics that were not related together, and that was I thought personally very interesting. Yeah. All right. I mean that sounds really neat. I uh, I I never really knew how um, people how the lab sort of system works mm -hmm. in in some of the sciences and how you sort of match up that way. Um, so you said you didn't have any background in neuro, like anything coming yeah. in. Did you find that a difficult transition to pick up all this extra stuff? I mean, the, the learning curve is definitely steep. Um, 
but that's also joining a lab. I mean, when I joined the lab, they were using these terms willy-nilly that yeah. I had no idea what they meant. <laughs> and I would be Googling them qu <laughs> quietly on the side of my phone. I, what does that mean? Like, I better start knowing it, right? right like, yeah. uh, a, a common word is aliquot. And it just means to make a small portion out of a larger portion. Okay. So if you have a stock of, let's say, a liter of a liquid, you make a, a, a small 50 mil aliquot of it. And now the, the, the term is so useful, I use it at home. I'm making, <laughs> I'm making an aliquot of my pasta, I'm making an aliquot <laughs> of my juice and soda, right? So oh, wow. it, it's these small terms that you don't think about a lot or you don't use and then they become such, they become su such a daily routine in your life. Um, but going back to n uh, the background of uh, brain anatomy and neurobiology, it was definitely a steep learning curve, but, um, but that's what you, you have to learn. You have to constantly learn and improve your knowledge, right. which is one of the reasons why I liked academia is because you're always questioning yourself you're always getting new information and i think mm -hmm. that is one of the most interesting things about academia rather than a desk job where you just like work the same thing again and again and again and again right for someone who's just really curious right exactly yeah. absolutely yeah yeah i mean uh, <laughs> i guess you and i both know that it, it it can be really really hard to be in a lab and it takes a lot of effort yeah mm -hmm. uh, so that one of the benefits of not having a, a nine to five uh, like other people have is we get the freedom to kind of do what we want to do and when we want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but it can also be quite stressful because it, the burden is all on us and the responsibility yeah. is a lot higher. Uh, you can't just shut off your brain and go in auto automatic mode every day. You have to be on it. You have right, to be turned yeah. on. Uh, and... I, I notice in the lab you're you're fairly organized, you're clean, everything's in the right direction, in the right yeah. way, and lined up, and you yeah. do really well. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big stiffler for that. Uh, I, I, I'm the I'm the guy who's always on top of people for being extra super clean, and I, I can get annoying. I'm not even going to deny that, but you know, I mean, when you're working in a, in an area that has a lot of hazardous material, right. chemicals, dangerous stuff, it's good to be a little organized and clean. You know. Plus, especially if you're spending a lot of time somewhere, you don't want to mm -hmm. be in a messy environment. So, so uh, on that note, and having to be prepared and having to be organized for this to be successful as a grad student, generally, it doesn't just apply to lab positions. Some mm -hmm. people don't work in the lab, and they need to be equally careful with what they're doing. Absolutely. Um, what? Yeah, so we're coming just. Close to the end, mm -hmm. so I wanted to see, say, uh, you know, as a student, I, I don't know, how long have you been here? Uh, two and a half years. So, yeah. two and a, at two and a half years in, um, what have you learned now, and what ca what advice can you give to other grad students that want to also be equally successful? Right. Um, I would definitely say the most important thing is to make sure the lab that you're, the lab uh, program that you're getting into is something that you're passionate about, because you do not want to be committed to something and then realize sometime down the line that it's not for you. Um, I, the last time I took a break, as in a vacation, was uh, last August. And okay. I didn't take a break during Christmas. And I haven't taken a break ever since. And I don't know when my break is going to be. But I, I'm not complaining that much because I like what I do. Right. And I think that is the most important thing. And um, another important thing I would say is to not really have a set schedule like Ariel said, 9 to 5. Right. Um, 
come in on the weekends, do that extra work because it's only going to make your resume, your CV, your experience more solid when you apply for a postdoc or a faculty position. We all know that these things are super competitive these days. Um, when you, once you become tenure, no one wants to leave the position. And once you're, when, when you're retiring, there are about 60 to 100 people competing for that same spot. <laughs> I, so, thought you, I thought you were going to say between 60 and 100 years old, no, that's when they retire. <laughs> well, th that too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I would say, like, don't think about um, having a set schedule. Come in, work hard, um, work, be in an area that you're super passionate about, and then so that work is not work then. And then you won't feel bad if you have to stay in until 10 o'clock at night, come in at 2 o'clock in the morning, be in the lab continuously at 9 o'clock in the morning, if you're mm. not a morning person like me. Um, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I think those are the best two things that I can th think of. There was a, I don't know whose quote this was, I'd heard someone say it somewhere. Uh, someone had said, uh, when vacation meets vocation, then you have uh -huh. a career. Absolutely. And I don't, I don't know who said that, but I, th I, was, I sometimes think about that. Maybe because it sounds good. <laughs> yeah, no, that is really catchy. Well, um, I mean, speaking of careers, though, um, have you thought about what you're building up to, like after this degree? Yeah. What, what are your hopes and dreams? Um, I, so I'm, I love teaching, and a lot of. Um, researchers and scientists they don't like teaching they want okay. to be in the lab and generating data and you know but i love teaching and i love taing and something that you don't hear a lot of graduate students oh yeah for say, sure you know so i want to i would love to be a lecturer maybe not so much run a lab because once you're running a lab basically what you're doing is writing grants all day yeah. you're asking governments and agencies give me money give me money give me money and that doesn't seem that exciting but being in a classroom um, uh, you know, making kids more passionate about science, getting them excited. That is something that I look forward to. And I think that is something that I would love to have a, a, a professor in a university teaching, a teaching right. prof. Yeah. So inspiring the minds of tomorrow. Absolutely. Yeah. That sounds great. Okay, so um, I think that we don't have too much time left. So I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank um, you for having me. Uh, so th this was GradCast. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, if you want to come, on, if you're a grad student and you want to come on the show, uh, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Um, and it's uh, good uh, for your CV as well. I know I'm going to put it on my CV, so you should too. <laughs> um, if you want to listen to the podcast online, you can go to gradcast.ca. Uh, and you can, as usual, listen to us, if you are hearing us now, on the radio, live uh, at 6 o'clock on Tuesdays at CHRW 90, 94.9. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, bye. Yeah.